0: Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, as we continue going through the gospel of Luke, we're going to be in verse 49 through 56 this morning. As you turn there, let me just repeat Ben's uh, invitation to you to come back this evening at Camp Good News and in other locations for our electives this evening. Love to to see you there and have you participate in those uh, with us and with Bethany Baptist and er, uh, and Living Hope Community Church as well. Luke chapter 9, verses 49 through 56, and if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Village, you may be seated. And Father, we this morning would ask you to open your Word to us. We thank you for the privilege of being able to come together and, and discuss your Word and worship you. And we pray that we would be changed as a result of of looking at your Word this morning. Your Spirit would work within us, and we would be the the, the believers that you desire us to be. We pray that we do this for your glory we pray this in your Son, Jesus' name, amen. Christians have often had the reputation of being harsh and judgmental. In 1847, there was a novel published Jane, called Jane Eyre. And in Jane Eyre, the main character Jane goes and visits a church and listen to what she said about the sermon. She says, throughout the sermon, there was a strange bitterness an absence of consolatory gentleness. Stern allusions to Calvinistic doctrines, election, predestination, and reprobation were frequent, and each reference to these doctrines sounded like a sentence pronounced for doom. In other words, Jane found little comfort in the sermon. She says, I was sure that the preacher, pure-lived, conscientious, and zealous though he may be, had not yet found the peace of God which passeth all understanding. Jane found that the preachers he proclaimed truths of God's word lacked gentleness, lacked mercy, and indeed the characterization of Christians as harsh and judgmental and, and unmerciful unfortunately has some basis in reality, does it not? I can remember in college I had a very uh, harsh edge to me at times. One time I went home to visit my family and as we were There at the dinner table, I began to discuss some doctrinal issue, and and very often I found in college that whenever I discussed biblical truths, instead of bringing people joy, uh, my discussions seemed to bring contentiousness and argumentativeness, and we're there at the dinner table, and we're discussing this doctrinal issue, and my dad and I were having a little bit of a disagreement, and my tone got very harsh, and all of a sudden, uh, grandma started crying. Anytime grandma starts crying, you're wrong. Even if you're right, you're wrong, right? Granny crying is a bad sign. Harsh, judgmental, unmerciful sometimes characterizes our Christianity. There's two dangers that we have as Christians, right? One danger is to lack mercy as we proclaim truth. The other danger is to become toast Christians, uh, ineffectual and weak and failing to proclaim truth whatsoever. Sometimes we proclaim truth without mercy, and sometimes we proclaim mercy without truth because we're so fearful of offending people. What we're going to see this morning as we look at the Gospel of Luke and look at this story, these two stories really, and see the Apostle John, the disciple John in each of these stories is we're going to see this this disciple John often also struggled with mercy and balancing mercy and truth. And as we look at the disciple of John and Jesus' interactions with John and his brother James, these sons of thunder, as Jesus would call them in the Gospel of John, I hope that what we see is that you and I are to promote mercy, proclaim mercy, while at the same time protecting truth. You and I are to be bold proclaimers of truth in a merciful way. I hope that is the conviction you come to as you look at this passage with me this morning. And as we look at this passage and see that you and I are to promote mercy while protecting truth, we're going to look at four principles. And these four principles should help us combat the arrogance and lack of mercy that sometimes exists within us. And yet these principles are also principles that will ensure that you and I are bold proclaimers of truth while proclaiming mercy as well hope you're excited about looking at this passage with me. Let's begin by looking at verse 49. As you turn your Bibles to Luke 9, 49, maybe you're already there, remember the context. Last week, we looked at verses 46 through 48, and remember what had happened in verses 46 through 48? Jesus' disciples had been arguing about which of them was the greatest, and it wasn't an argument, you're the greatest, no, no, you're the greatest. It was, I'm the greatest, no, no, I'm the greatest. And as they had this argument about who was the greatest, Jesus had told them that the person that is the greatest, who is the least, turning their cultural assumptions on, his, on, its, on their heads, he said, look, the person who is the greatest servant, the least among all, who receives even the weakest among you, that person is the person who's the greatest. That brings us to verse 49. John hears Jesus say that, and and perhaps John uh, uh, gets a little bit convicted here as he hears Jesus say this. He says, uh, Jesus, there was a situation, uh, and here's what happened. He said, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and, and we tried to stop him because he didn't follow with us. In other words, John's saying, uh, okay, all this stuff you just said about receiving a child and the grace there, there's this incident that happened recently, and uh, I just want to kind of confirm we were right here. There was this guy, and he was casting out demons in your name. Now, we don't know the story behind what John's telling us. Apparently, there was a person who had come into contact with Jesus and his ministry and was engaged in this, in this ministry of, of casting out demons. Now, we don't know how he received this commission to do so, but apparently... He was doing so in submission to Jesus. He recognized the authority of Jesus' teaching, and so he's engaged in, in this ministry underneath the authority of Jesus' name. He wasn't going out there and saying, I'm doing this. He was saying, I'm doing this in Jesus' name. And, and perhaps Jesus had some sort of conversation with him. We don't know. But we know that he's doing it in submission to Jesus, recognizing his authority over the demonic realm. And remember this, the disciples two weeks ago we saw were unable to cast a demon out of a, a, this, this man's son. And so this man, this, this person that John's referring to, is able to do something that the disciples, that we saw two weeks ago, had been unable to do. And this man is doing it, recognizing the power of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. And so obviously he's interacted with Jesus' ministry in some way. And the disciples, John says, and the reason we stopped him wasn't theological. It wasn't that he was wrong to recognize your authority. What does he say? We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. He's not part of the the club, Jesus. He's not part of the 12 disciples, and he's certainly not part of the inner group. And remember, we've been arguing about who's the greatest, and I'd imagine that the disciples, as they argued about who was the greatest... they might acknowledge eventually. Okay, it might not be me, but the idea that it wouldn't be another one of the twelve would be completely foreign to them. And so, the idea that there's this guy going around engaging in this ministry, yes, in submission to Jesus, but not part of us, not part of this group that's following Jesus around, was completely foreign to John. And so he says, "Jesus, I hear we just said about the greatest being the least, and..." Ideas of prominence being different in your kingdom than than our thinking, but uh, we were right in doing that, right? What does Jesus say as he responds to John? He says, John, do not stop him. Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Later, he'll say, the one who's not for us is against us. In other words, with Jesus, there aren't gray areas. And so the person who is in submission to Jesus and his ministry is, is part of Jesus' ministry. That brings us to the first principle here. The first principle is we think about promoting mercy while protecting truth. Uh, and I say this in a loving way, no one... Has a monopoly on gospel ministry. Get over yourself. No one has a monopoly on gospel ministry. Get over yourself. And again, I could have said get over myself, but it didn't ring right in a sermon. So no one has a monopoly on gospel ministry. The call on you and I is to get over ourselves. So often we're convinced that here in the year uh, 2011 in central Illinois, at at five points in Washington, Illinois, uh, Christian history has reached its zenith. And now, finally, there's a group of people who are finally doing ministry right, and everything that we do in ministry is the right way to do it, right? So often, that's our our, our belief is that our cultural assumptions, the way that Christianity expresses itself in our culture is the right way to do ministry. I was talking to a, a pastor friend this, this last week, and uh, my, my pastor friend has an, an iPad. And I have been uh, trying to justify purchasing an iPad. I can't do it. I, I haven't been able to figure out a good ministry tool for it yet. So I asked him, I said, uh, do you think that you'd ever preach using an ipad he goes what do you mean i said well instead of taking your bible up to the pulpit and and putting the you know your bible on the pulpit would you would you take an ipad he goes oh never never he said there's there's something sacred about taking your bible and, and preaching from your bible and, and i said yeah yeah so so the apostle paul preached wrongly right because the apostle paul didn't have a leather bound english translation of scripture he just had Old Testament scrolls. You see what I'm saying? So often we're convinced that the way that, that we do ministry and that the things that we use to do ministry and proclaim the Word are, are the things to use. But now, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to get away from using a, a leather-bound bi- This is a very special Bible to me, so this is what I'm going to preach from. But is it wrong to use a, a scroll as you preach? I can imagine a conversation some 30 years in the future where a person asks another pastor, hey, are you going to use that new holographic 3D Bible? No, there's something sacred about that computer screen, holding that computer screen as, as you preach, right? John Hanna is a historian, and he wrote a book called Legacy of Faith. I want you to listen to what he said in this, this book, Legacy of Faith. He's talking about why we need to know church history. And he says, a knowledge of the history of doctrine provides a bulwark against pride And arrogance born of the thought that any one church or ecclesiastical tradition stands in the exclusive heritage of first century orthodoxy. In other words, uh, studying church history and the ways that Christianity has manifested itself throughout history and in different cultures protects us from arrogance saying, we're the only ones who've got ministry right. He gives several examples. He says this causes us to be careful in claiming biblical precedents. It helps us focus on those areas that are truly timeless and enduring, but so often you and I believe that we're the ones, even though we don't have, even though we don't have biblical uh, biblical justification for our position. So often we're convinced that we're the ones who've got ministry right. Keep your finger in Luke nine, if you would, and turn with me to First Corinthians chapter twelve. I want to I want to talk about six different quick little applications for this idea, this principle that no one has a monopoly on gospel ministry. Let me give you just kind of six points of application as we think about how to implement this in our own lives. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, if you're turning there, it's, it's after the Gospels, after Acts, Romans, and then you get to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed, and that's the, the first point of application that we see there in verse 1, your participation in gospel ministry is a gift of God. Number one, your participation in gospel ministry is a gift of God. How does he refer to this this spiritual enabling that God gives you? It's it's a gift. It's something that God sovereignly gives you, allows you to participate in. Participation in gospel ministry is a gift of God. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, he says, now there there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Well, there's our, our second point of application. Not only is participation in gospel ministry a gift of God, but number two, God gives gifts as He chooses, not as you and I choose. God looks at the church, and in order to enable the church to do ministry, He gives varieties of gifts, and, and He gives those gifts as He chooses. Verse 5. He says, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, verse 6, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them and everyone. That brings a third point of application here. Uh, You are expendable. You are replaceable. God is the one who enables us to do gifts. God gives these varieties of gifts as he chooses. That means as God sovereignly gives you a gift, God could also take you away and give that gift to someone else. You need to be exercising your spiritual gift, yes, but at the same time, as we exercise our spiritual gifts, we do so in humility, recognizing that the gifts are from God, and he gives them as he chooses. Therefore, you and I are expendable and replaceable. Fourth thing that we see, we see in verse seven. Verse seven, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Fourthly, then, we see that the purpose of our ministry is to strengthen the body, not strengthen ourselves. You and I, as we exercise our spiritual gifts, as we engage in ministry, our focus is on others, not on ourselves. Fifthly, we see that our community of faith is not the only community that's building the kingdom of God, and so often we can lose sight of that. I think that's a, a, great, uh, a, a great um I think it's, it's great that this morning would be the morning that we have visitors from local church, uh, local, local missions. The, these people are engaged in, in gospel ministry that goes beyond the walls of this church and they're engaged in ministries that our, our church might not able to be able to do on our own. Gospel ministry is done not only by Bethany Community Church but by other gospel preaching, gospel proclaiming churches in our community and around the world. And then lastly, our task, our task. then, if it's true that no one person has a gospel ministry monopoly, we need to get over ourselves. Number six, then, our community, or our, excuse me, our task, our task is to focus on the ministry to which God has called us. And you see that in First Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 14. The body does not consist of, of one member, but, but many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. The idea here is that Jesus is getting across to John, look, the person who's not against us is for us. There is no middle ground with me, and you 12 men are not the only 12 people who are going to be doing gospel ministry for me. You 12 people are not the only people I'm going to utilize to build my kingdom. The same is true for us at Bethany Community Church. No one church has a monopoly on gospel ministry. We need to get over ourselves recognizing that God sovereignly gives gifts as He will. And as we recognize that in humility, what should happen? We should have more mercy. It brings us to verse 51. And verse 51 marks a major transition in the gospel of Luke. In fact, it's it's so major, I I wondered if I should make it a a separate sermon. I should separate verse 50 and 51. But I think the stories of John is in each of these stories, and each of them reveal his lack of mercy. So I, I think they go together well thematically. But just understand, verse 51 marks a major shift in the gospel of Luke. We've seen at the very beginning of Luke, we've seen the childhood and birth narratives then we had Jesus' Galilean ministry. And now we begin a section of Luke that takes us all the way into Luke chapter 19 that's called Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. So look what happens in verse 51. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke until we get to Luke 19, Jesus is going to be this, engaged in this journey to Jerusalem. So what does he say? What does Luke say? He says, the days drew near. In other words, it's it's this time of fulfillment is taking place. This, this journey to Jerusalem that Jesus engages in is not accidental. It's foreordained. This is part of God's sovereign plan. That word, uh, that's translated drew near is also a word that can be translated uh, filled up. It's as if God has this, this cosmic barrel and, and time is pouring into this barrel. And as time reaches its, its zenith, this, this exact point uh, Jesus's foreordained ministry in Jerusalem is going to be fulfilled. That, this is not an accidental uh, part of God's plan. This is part of God's foreordained plan for Jesus. It says the days drew near for him to be taken up, we've seen that before in Luke 9, this idea of being taken up, being uh, ascended into heaven, part of his death and resurrection, this atonement ministry. And it says that he, 50, verse, again verse 51, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That expression, to set your face, means to determine within yourself in the midst of difficulty that you're going to do something. It's a Hebrew idiom. We see it, for example, in Jeremiah 21.10 God says, I've set my face against this city for harm and not for good. Jeremiah forty four twelve. 12, God says, I will take the remnant of Judah who've set their faces to come to the land of Egypt to live, and they shall all be consumed. Ezekiel 6, 2, uh, God tells Ezekiel, son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel. Jesus now sets his face. He understands God's calling on his life. He understands this aspect of his ministry. And so now he sets his face, he determines, in the midst of opposition, to go to Jerusalem. So he begins this next section of his ministry. Here's what happens. As he begins to go to Jerusalem, he sends messengers ahead of him. Who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Now, let's just take a moment here and talk a little bit about the Samaritans. Who are these Samaritans? You're going to see them several places in Scripture throughout the Gospels. Uh, again, keep your finger in Luke 9 and turn with me to 2 Kings. 2 Kings verse uh, chapter 31. I'm sorry, 2 Kings verse uh, chapter 17. 2 Kings 17. Now, as you turn there, let me just remind you a little bit about the history of Israel. Remember, there's King David. King David became king around 1,000 B.C., and then uh, somewhere between 900 and 1,000 B.C., Solomon was king, and then there was this split of the kingdom of Israel into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom failed to obey God. They failed to listen to his prophets. They failed to repent. The northern kingdom was uh, a little worse than the southern kingdom. Both of them failed God in amazing ways. And so the northern kingdom was taken off into captivity first. And we come in verse 6 of Second Kings 17. And it says, In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and Haber and the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. Okay? And so then he says, verse 7, this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. And so why was the northern kingdom taken away into captivity? Because of their idolatry. He goes on, and, he, and the, the writer of Second Kings he tells us in verse 23 that the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets, so Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. Now, look what happens in verse 24. This is, this is where we get Samaritans. You have some people from the northern, of king, northern kingdom who aren't carried away into exile. They, they stay there in the northern kingdom, this northern area of Israel. And verse 24 says the king of Assyria, that's the king, remember, who carried the other, ones, other people away into captivity. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kuthath, Ava, Hamath, and Seraphim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. Uh, and, And essentially what happens is they recognize, their need to rec- they recognize their need to acknowledge God, and so they do that. But verse 29 tells us this, every nation still made gods of its own and put them in shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities in which they lived. And so essentially now, you have these people in Samaria who are worshiping Yahweh God, but at the same time, because of this influence of other people, they are worshiping these other idols as well. And the Samaritans refused to recognize the rest of God's revelation. The only part of God's revelation they recognized were the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and they believed that worship should should happen in their own area, in Mount Gerizim, instead of in Jerusalem. Those are the Samaritans. There's hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so Jesus, Jesus, unlike other Jews of his day, is willing to go into Samaria, and he sends these messengers ahead of him. They go in, they enter the village of the Samaritans, and how do the Samaritans respond? Verse 53, it says, The people did not receive him. Jesus enters into the area of Samaria And now he's been rejected, not only by Jews earlier we saw in the Gospel of Luke, but now he's being rejected by Samaritans as well. That brings us to our second principle. The second principle we see as we look at Jesus' interaction with these Samaritans is this. Rejection is a normative part of gospel ministry. Get used to it. Rejection is a normative part of gospel ministry. Get used to it. So oftentimes we're surprised and shocked that people would reject our message and, and we're shocked that people wouldn't receive us or receive Christ. Get used to it. Rejection is a normative part of gospel ministry. How did the Israelites get carried away into captivity in the first place? Because, 2 Kings tells us, they failed to listen to the prophets. The normal response to God's truth, apart from God's miraculous interacting with our hearts and changing them, is rejection. Our normal response to the gospel ministry is to reject it, and that's what's taken place here. A couple points of application as you think about this truth that rejection is a normative part of gospel ministry. One is simply this, uh, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Uh, David Wells has written a book, and in the book he he writes this. He says, the problem is that even the mildest, uh, the book is called uh, No Place for Truth, David Wells' No Place for Truth. He says, the problem is that even the mildest assertion of Christian truth today Sounds like a thunderclap because the well polished civility of our religious talk has kept us from hearing much of this kind of thing. In other words, it's so foreign in our culture to hear bold proclamations of truth that it sounds, sounds strange to us. Then he gives this illustration. He talks about a, a person who enters a room. He says, A person who enters the room by leaning on a broken door may get a reputation for violence. You know, it looks like this guy's just bashing this door. But, he says, the condition of the door did have something to do with his precipitous entry. In other words, as we proclaim truth, it sounds so strange in a culture that isn't used to bold proclamations of truth that it sounds almost violent. Rejection is a normative part of gospel ministry. You and I need to get used to it, to prepare ourselves for it. Speak the truth in love, first of all. Second of all, prepare for rejection, Thirdly, use Christ as our motto when rejection takes place. That means we love the people who reject us. We have a desire to see God work in their hearts. So we're thinking again about promoting mercy and protecting truth. First of all, we've seen that no one has a, a monopoly on gospel ministry. We need to get over ourselves and, and be merciful with people who are different from us. We see that rejection is a normative part of gospel ministry. We need to get used to it. And so instead of hating people who reject us or, or being at odds with those who have a different understanding of, of truth than we do, uh, we understand, look, this is, a, this is normal. This shouldn't surprise me. Here's what we see next. Remember, I, we're in verse 53. And I, I stopped halfway through that, that verse. Look at it again with me, if you would. It says, the people, the Samaritans, did not receive him. Why? Because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Remember what I told you about the Samaritans. They believed that worship of God took place in Samaria. Remember in John chapter 4? John chapter 4, Jesus is interacting with that woman at the well. And the woman is saying, You know, where do we need to worship? That's kind of that's kind of her hang up. And Jesus says, Look, there's gonna be a time coming where you, where you can worship anywhere. You just worship God in spirit and in truth. Okay. The Samaritans realize that Jesus has his face set toward Jerusalem. He understands that worship of God needs to take place on God's terms. And as the people of Samaria recognize that Jesus is not accepting their understanding of how to worship God. What do they do? They reject him. They reject him. It's interesting. This is exactly what the Jews did. Remember a couple of chapters earlier in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. Uh, He preaches the sermon. Everyone's all excited. And then he says, hey, by the way, you guys don't have a free pass. And he talks about how God's ministry wasn't excluded only to the people of Nazareth, but, but also people, uh, the people of Israel, but also beyond. And it says that, verse 29 of Luke chapter 4, they were furious with Jesus. They rose up, they drove him out of the town, and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so they could throw him down from the cliff. Verse 28 says they were filled with wrath. The Samaritans are upset that Jesus' face is set toward Jerusalem. Earlier, the people of Nazareth were upset because Jesus wasn't recognizing their special place. Here's the third principle here's the third principle of, of promoting mercy while protecting truth. The gospel is universally humbling in its exclusiveness. Be humbled. The gospel is universally humbling in its exclusiveness. Be humbled. What do I mean here? God is incredibly inclusive. God is incredibly inclusive in that all of us need to what? Repent. He's incredibly exclusive in that life can only be found in him. Psalm 87 is a beautiful psalm that describes this idea, the gospel being universally humbling in its exclusiveness. In Psalm 87, the psalmist is talking about the gates of Zion. He says, God loves the gates of Zion, this is 87 verse 2, more than all the dwelling places of Jacob, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. And then he starts talking about all these people who are coming in through the gates of Zion. He says, Rahab and Babylon, uh, the Philistines, the people from Tyre, the, the Ethiopians. And he's saying all of these are, are citizens of the city. This one was born here, they say. The Lord re- records as he registers the people, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs, my, all my salvation is found in you. What do we see in Psalm 87? God welcomes everyone. God welcomes Everyone. All are are welcome through the gates of Zion. In fact, God loves the gates of Zion because those are the entry points into worship of him. And God rejoices as the the Philistine and the Ethiopian and the person from Tyre come in through these gates and they engage in worship of him. God loves it. One issue. The Babylonian can't stay in Babylon and worship there. Salvation isn't found in Babylon. Salvation isn't found in Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Salvation is found in Zion, where God has revealed Himself. The gospel is inclusive, it humbles everyone. The gospel is exclusive. We can only find life in Christ. If you follow, Christian blogs or uh, Christian news, you may have heard about a, a, a book that's coming out this next week. It's uh, by Rob Bell, and I'm not going to say too much about it yet because, because I haven't read the whole book yet, obviously. And I don't know exactly what he's going to say about some things, but my prediction is that this is going to be a very groundbreaking book, and, and I don't mean that in a positive way. Let me read an, an excerpt from the book and just talk about this this excerpt that I that I've looked at and I, it relates to this idea of exclusiveness and inclusiveness. Rob Bell's book is, is about hell and it, it looks like, and we don't know this for sure yet, but it looks like he's going to be he's going to take a Christian universalist perspective. In other words, uh, everyone uh, gets saved and there is no hell that 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 people have to suffer in. Uh, I don't know for sure that's going the tack that he's going to take, but. I do know that this, this, this statement that I've read from him uh, bothers me greatly, and I'll tell you why. Let me read it first. He's talking about uh, the door to heaven being open to those of different faiths, and he says this, as soon as the door is open to Muslims and Hindus, Buddhists and Baptists from Cleveland, many Christians become uneasy, saying that Jesus doesn't matter anymore, the cross is irrelevant, irrelevant. it doesn't matter what you believe, and so forth. He goes, Not true. Uh, absolutely, unequivocally, unalterably not true. What Jesus does is declare that he and he alone is saving everybody. And then, and this is the concerning part, and then after Jesus is saving everybody, he leaves the door way, way open, creating all sorts of possibilities. He is as narrow as himself and as wide as the universe. People come to Jesus in all sorts of ways. Sometimes people use his name, sometimes they don't. Some people have so much baggage with regard to the name Jesus that when they encounter the mystery present in all creation, grace, peace, love, acceptance, healing, forgiveness, the last thing they want to name it is Jesus. What we see Jesus doing again and again in the midst of constant reminders about the seriousness of following him and living like him and trusting him is widening the scope and expanse of his saving work. You see what Rob Bell is saying there? He's saying that yeah, Jesus is the one who makes heaven available for us, and yet he opens the door wide so the people of other faiths who who may not like the name Jesus can still get there. That's heresy. Acts chapter four. What does Peter proclaim? In Acts chapter four, Peter proclaims the exclusiveness of the gospel message. In verse twelve of Acts. Chapter 4, Peter says this, There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is an exclusive message. Let me give you three points of application here as we think about this principle. The gospel is universally humbling in its exclusiveness. Be humbled. Application number one, you're wrong you are wrong. And I say that very inclusively. It is it, No one in this room is exempt from this principle, you are wrong. You write down Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 say the moralist is wrong, the legalist is wrong, the person who has never heard the name of God is wrong. Everyone is wrong. That is incredibly inclusive. Here's the exclusive point Application point number two, God is right. God is right. And every single person needs to humble themselves and say, God is right, I am wrong. That's the exclusive part of the gospel. And the third part, then, obviously, is you and I must humble ourselves. We must get right. And as we think about this, the gospel being universally humbling, every person being wrong, one person being right, God, what should be the response? It should be humility. And what does humility produce? Judgmentalism, right? No. Humility produces mercy. Look on at the story with me. You would. Verse 54 James and John, these sons of thunder, see what's just taken place. Samaritans have rejected the Messiah. They are shocked and they are ticked off. What happens? Lord, would you like us to call fire down from heaven? and consume this city kind of a humorous suggestion except they're serious second Kings chapter 1 verse 1 through 17 you can kind of see a parallel here but what is what does Jesus respond uh, Jesus says this uh, verse 55 John and James have just said Lord you want heaven to come down and consume them what verse 55 Jesus turns and he rebukes them some some versions say that uh, Jesus says you do not know what what manner of spirit you are for the son of man came not to destroy people's lives but to save them the principle is this the principle is this god graciously allows time for people to repent and believe the gospel go and do likewise the principle is that god graciously allows time for people to repent and believe the gospel go and do likewise. That's this last principle. First, chapter 10, it's kind of interesting. Sometimes people think, well, this means that Jesus, Jesus is all about mercy. There's no judgment. There's, there's no accounting for wrong. This means that, that everyone's right. Well, notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, well, uh, hey, we have our belief and they have theirs. We're all cool. Jesus also doesn't say that judgment is never coming. In fact, if you look over in chapter ten, chapter ten, verse thirteen, Jesus says this: "Woe to you, Corazza!" He's just talking about the cities that have rejected his message. "Woe to you, Bethsaida!" For if the mighty works that had been done in you, which had been done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Verse fourteen. But it will be more bearable in the the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. In other words, Jesus is saying this, judgment is coming. Right now, it's not the time for judgment. Right now is the time for mercy. And God, in his graciousness, loves the Samaritans and is allowing time for people to repent and turn to the gospel if that's God's attitude toward people, how should you and I respond? We too should respond with grace and mercy and love, recognizing that it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance as well. That's the response of mercy. Well, those are the four principles here. Did John get it did John, this son of thunder, begin to understand? Yeah, he did. And the, the Apostle John became a prominent proclaimer of both grace, love, and truth. In fact, as you look at, his, at his, the letters that the Apostle John wrote, First and 2 John mention love more than any other book of the Bible. The Gospel of John mentions love more than any other gospel book. And yet, at the same time, not only does John understand love and preach love, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are the most frequent books that mention truth. So, John, this zealous defender of truth, becomes a defender of truth and a proclaimer of mercy. In fact, let me read you as we close here the last, some some of what he wrote in 2nd John. 2nd John, verse 4, he says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as commandment, but the one not, not, uh, not as though writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And what is love? And this is love that we walk according to His commandments. and this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out in the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Do you see love and truth mixed so well together there by the Apostle John? He says, look, I rejoice that you're walking in the truth. I'm glad that you're walking in the truth. And now I want you to continue to walk in love, love one another, be merciful, be gracious. That's what God calls us to And may the caricature of us not be harsh, judgmental, fire-proclaiming, excited about the coming of hell, but may we be characterized by bold proclaimers as, as being bold proclaimers of truth, and yet people who love mercy and exhibit the mercy of God that has been exhibited toward us. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your mercy in our lives and your grace. We pray that we would exhibit that same mercy in the lives of others. Give us your grace, we pray, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.